From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. This is your news for Wednesday, November 17th. Governor Spencer Cox cemented Utah's new election boundaries with the stroke of a pen yesterday. He approved the state legislature's new maps for the state House and state Senate seats. For the state House, Grand will join San Juan, Kane, Garfield, Wayne, and most of Emory County as Utah District 69. For a decade, Grand County has been split down the middle into two state house districts. The Grand County Commission asked state legislators to make the county whole again as they redrew election boundaries using updated census data. Commissioner Kevin Walker says District 69 is not exactly what we're asking for, but it's not the sort of crazy gerrymander that we got 10 years ago where Moab was split down the middle. So you know, if, we, if we're only you know, putting on blinders and looking from Grand County's point of view, it's I think, a, a tolerable result. Grand is also kept whole for their state Senate seat, which will be numbered District 26. The district includes Grand, San Juan, Emory, Carbon, and parts of Kane, Garfield, Wayne, Utah, and Wasatch counties. But the main chatter around redistricting in Utah is not centered around the state House and state Senate seats. It's centered around Utah's new U.S. congressional districts. Last week, Governor Cox signed those maps into law amidst protest from some groups. The legislature sliced Utah's capital, Salt Lake, into four different congressional districts, effectively dissecting the Democratic stronghold. The Princeton gerrymandering project calls this practice cracking or breaking up an area to deprive it of political power. Their redistricting report card gives Utah's congressional map a zero for partisan fairness. Here's Walker. I think the congressional maps are very clearly a partisan gerrymander. That was pretty disappointing. Although the state maps are signed into law, counties are still drawing up their own local districts. Grand's commissioners are considering how to best balance population changes while respecting neighborhood boundaries and other communities of interest. My hope is that we can pick a map that everybody agrees is is reasonable. I, I think there's lots of different ways of carving up Grand County into five districts. Grand's commission narrowed down their map choices in a special meeting this week. They are now looking at about five different options for new districts. I would like to see a map that makes sense geographically in addition to being fair in a, from a partisan point of view. It's kind of a shame we couldn't have done it a month earlier because I think we could have set a positive example for the state legislature about how to do things in an you know, open, reasonable manner. Grand County's commission will host their next workshop on local redistricting on November 30th. Walker says the commission would like to make a decision on the new map by early December. You can find ways to comment and check out the options at grandcountyutah.net by clicking on Redistricting 2021. The humpback chub, an important fish in the Colorado River Basin, will move from an endangered species to a threatened one starting today. KUNC's Alex Hager has more. The species was listed as endangered more than 50 years ago when new dams on the river interfered with its whitewater habitats in Colorado, Utah, and Arizona. The new status marks progress, but conservationists like Jen Pels with Wild Earth Guardians say it's not the right move. Downlisting isn't the answer. I think that you keep doing the things and you keep justifying the program because it's clearly working. There's it, the, the species is not as in dire state as it was 
you know, 30 years ago. But the reality is, is that, you know, one project on a certain tributary could completely wipe out the species. The humpback chub is seen as an indicator species. When it's doing well, so is the river. But Pels also said the effects of climate change could further threaten the fish. I'm Alex Hager. An ecology PhD student is in Jackson, Wyoming this fall, studying winter ticks and their effect on the local moose population. To help with data collection, he's getting help from some furry friends. Will Walkie from KHOL Jackson has the story on how the joint canine and human research might help wildlife managers better preserve one of Wyoming's most iconic species. Troy Kozer is walking in the brush next to the Snake River in Wilson, surveying the tips of vegetation. The thing he's looking for is about the size of the head of a pin, but that small organism can pack a big punch. There's uh, gonna be, you know, 100 to 200 on here. And you can imagine that when a moose is moving through, this is all like moose belly height. Like there, there's a ball there, there's a ball there. So they hit several of these little tiny balls at once. But then you get hundreds of larvae on you, and those hundreds of larvae, you know, they're, they're on for the rest of the year. That's what the local moose population has been dealing with for at least a few centuries. Kozer says when pioneers first came to Jackson Hole, they observed winter ticks, as well as moose, elk, and deer trying to rub the bugs off of them when they shed their coats in the spring. They're not having a good time. And you could think, like, if they're spending all that time rubbing, then that's less time eating, that's less time being vigilant. Right? There's, they're just like not happy. They're annoyed. And they've got other things to do. It's the hardest time of year for them. And tick populations might be growing, or at least having a different effect on moose as the climate changes in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. That's what Kozer's studying at Montana State University, and he's working with local biologists to figure out exactly how current climate projections, things like more rainfall, earlier snowmelt, and drought, might affect the unhealthy relationship ticks and moose currently have. We don't necessarily know what, like, how many ticks are bad and if hair loss really leads to like death or horrible outcomes for them. We just know it looks bad and we're trying to figure out how bad that bad is. But to accurately track ticks, Kozer needs to find them first, which isn't always an easy task with our limited human vision. That's where Frost comes in. He's like, there's a cage over there. I better go check that out. Frost is a mixed-breed pooch whose day job is sniffing out invasive species around Jackson Hole. Amy Hurt is co-founder of the organization Working Dogs for Conservation, and she's helping train Frost to see if he can smell those small tick balls in the field. From the trainer perspective, the work is figuring out how to get the dog to be able to do this, and, and then measuring, like, okay, so they can do it to the best of their ability. Is that ability helpful enough to be put into use? On this recent Friday, Hurt and Kozer have set up a little obstacle course for Frost. There are plant clippings with tick balls on them in wire cages throughout the woods, as well as some cages without any bugs. Chase! Good boy. The idea is to assess whether or not the dog can figure out which is which. He was starting to put his butt down um, as I click. When I click, I'm telling him that you're right. Hurt says Frost is getting better at approaching plants more gently and detecting tick scents from farther and farther away. Nobody's ever tried to see if dogs can sniff out winter ticks before, so there's a lot of trial and error. But even small signs of progress could have big impact. He knows tick odor, and he knows that he's most often going to find them on the tips of plants. So he's connecting two of the most important dots. 
If Frost shows he can be useful in the field, trainers can start taking him out for real to collect data. And though winter ticks will likely never be eradicated in Jackson, Kozer says it's important to understand the extent of the problem for local moose. Since they're endemic, for the most part, managers don't really want to know how to get rid of them. It's going to be mostly how much money should I devote to protecting our moose, given climate change and what we think will happen with the ticks. Kozer also says his research is shedding more light on just how much stress moose go through every day. From avoiding trucks on Highway 22, to navigating around livestock fencing, to putting up with tiny, blood-sucking parasites. Will Walkie, KHOL News. This piece comes from our partners at KHOL in Jackson. And that's the KZMU News for Wednesday, November 17th. Get your community-powered journalism Monday through Friday at noon and 7. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.